Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason, and we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording on the 12th day of July 2017 from the Sully Baseball Studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. Hey, let me just tell you something. I'm not going to pull back the curtains too much, but... You know, this has been a stuff going on outside the Sully Baseball world that is causing, you know, a little bit of stress and anxiety and everything like that. And some of the people who I've been talking to who, you know, know what's going on in your past Sully's life have said, you know, when I said maybe I should just stop doing the podcast, um, responded, no, you should do the things that make you happy as you're going through this. And I said, all right, I'm going to plow through this. And nothing makes me happier than being with you all, jumping in a psychological inner tube, and floating down the River Sully. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, there's a couple things I want to bring up. Uh, first and foremost is... The All-Star Game was last night. Um, I, I think that I, I watched enough of it to know that um, they didn't do an in-memoriam video. So that's good. Your pal Sully has the, uh, basically has the monopoly on in-memoriam videos for the All-Star Game still. And I've, one of these days they'll come to their senses... And bring me aboard, because you know, people said, you, you should do this at the All-Star Game. Yeah, you should. And what you should do is you should have your pal Sully make it. Um, as we're not going to have any baseball for the next few days, I figured it is as good a time as any to throw a podcast out, because you need your little baseball fix, and that's what I'm here for. Uh, the uh, the All-Star Game was a well-played game. It was an extra-inning game. Uh, Robinson Cano got the game-winning homer, and Andrew Miller got the save. Why can't the Yankees find stars like Andrew Miller or Robinson Cano? <laughs> That's my slight dig at the Yankees. Um, there's just strange things about the All-Star game. Um, first of all, I love they, they do the ceremony, and they did the ceremony where they had the uh, Latin Hall of Famers, and... I it was great. I thought it was a great celebration. Um, I think that you know, any time we get to celebrate uh, Pedro Martinez, your pal Sully is all for that. Um, I, and I, it was really nice seeing you know, like Orlando Cepeda and the widow and the children of Roberto Clemente. Robbie Alomar looks great. I gotta go, can, we just, can we put that on the table? Hey, everyone else looks a little older. You know, Tony Perez, you know, he's an old man. But, you know, Robbie Alomar, if someone has a hole at second base, look me in the eye and tell me Robbie Alomar couldn't start on at least three major league lineups right now. Now, there's two rules that I'd like to bring about, and they are connected, that I would like to bring out uh, regarding the All-Star game. And I've said these before. And I'm going to say them again, and I'll say them again until I'm the damn commissioner. First of all, to avoid the tension 
of extra innings. When it went into extra innings, how many of you thought what I thought, which was, huh, if we go in extra innings and run out of pitchers, could we be in that situation that we were in that started the whole mess of having the All-Star game mean something? If, are we in that situation? Because the whole point of we've got to make the All-Star game mean something stemmed from the extra inning game in Milwaukee in 2002, which ended in a tie in the famous image of Bud Selig from Milwaukee, so proud that he brought the All-Star game to Milwaukee, sort of shrugging as if to say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Of which, I think that's absurd. You don't know what to do. I'll tell you exactly what you should do. And, and I said this then, and I will say this now. What they should have done was this. They should have said, okay, we've run out of pitchers. We're going to have a home run derby right here and now. Think of that. You had this steroid era going on. Guys jacked up to the yin-yang and say, all right, we got no more pitchers left. So let's just have someone, there must be some pitcher who hasn't used or some bullpen catcher, and just lob them up there and see who wins. You have a definite ending. It's a weird ending. It's wild. Who are we going to get? Who are you going to kind of quickly put two teams together? I said that the night it happened. Watching that game with Dan Cronin, the great comedy writer, in my apartment in New York. It made all the sense in the world. Something like, like look at We've run out of pitchers, so instead of saying, okay, that's it, say, okay, let's improvise. Let's come up with something, and let's do it. First team to get 10 home runs wins the All-Star game, because back then, it was just an exhibition. And the other rule that I've said in the past, and I'll say it again, the starting pitcher has to face all nine batters in the starting lineup. Minimum. You know, it's, it's always a great honor. Who's going to start the All-Star game? Sometimes there's controversy. One year it was Adam Wainwright or Clayton Kershaw. They picked Adam Wainwright. It's controversy. Yeah, but guess what? Wainwright was out after the first inning. Max Scherzer faced four batters. Four. That's a light load for a middle reliever, let alone Max Scherzer. Now, I know it's an exhibition. So you're not going to have Max Scherzer go nine innings. I got that. I understand. But the whole idea of the starting pitchers, they're facing down the best of the other league. Instead of, okay, face four, bye. That should be part of it. The starters should play until the fifth. And Scherzer should at least face nine. Face every National League starter. That should be the if you're you're going to start the All Star game. You're going to go. You're going to you're going to play your nine. And there are some pitchers who pitched under ten pitches. Take them out. You know, and people criticize millennials for the participation trophy mentality. Millennials didn't make that up. The baby boomers made that up. And. This is participation trophy territory. Let's get everyone in. Let's get everyone in. And by the end, the guys playing in extra innings are not the big stars that you want to see. 
That was, turns out they still had star, enough stars to have Robinson Cano hit a home run and, and Andrew Miller get the save, but still. Still. I mean, either make it, 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 you know, put little rules like that in to make the enjoyment of the game better. And here's my other rule. If it's now just an exhibition, and I've said ad nauseum that it should be at the beginning of the year, don't throw tradition at me. It should be at the beginning of the year, and it should go no more than nine innings. After nine innings, you have, a, you have a playoff home run derby because that's fun. And you won't have biting at the fingernails if it going extra innings. I said, who, I thought, when I saw it going extra innings, I thought to myself, watch. Just watch what happens. This goes to extra innings again. They run out of pitchers. It'll end in a tie. And that will be that. And... You know, then they'd have to say, well, I guess we've got to make it count again. It was actually one of the better All-Star games we've had. A lot better than the ones that, that it's time it counts. I never was really against the this time it counts. Uh, it was absurd, but no more absurd than having it alternate every other year the way it used to. But now it's going to be whichever team has the best record, which I think is fun. I think if two teams have identical records, the winner of the All-Star game should be the tiebreaker. How about that? How about that? I also think that fans maybe should vote or should vote on who ends the game. If we know the game is going to be over in the ninth, then you know the lineup that will be out there with the game on the line. There you go. The main thing about getting the All-Star game is to be on the lineup where they line up at the first and third base lines, and they say your name, you take a step forward, you tip your cap. You're not going to get all the players in. You're just not. So stop managing like that's the goal. It's obnoxious. I'd like to see some of the big hitters get more than one at bat. And the, when people talk about tradition of this All-Star game, remember, the All-Star game was formed in the 30s. It doesn't go back to Alexander Cartwright and the, and the Brooklyn Nine or whatever the hell the first team ever was. John Thorne just was screaming if he was listening to this podcast. I really wish he would. But it goes to the Depression and an exhibition game played in Chicago. And it was a big hit, and they kept going, well, we do it again. That made us money. So desperation and money were the parents of the All-Star game. Desperation really loved money, and they lay down after marriage, and nine months later, the All-Star game was born. And so, at the time in the 1930s, that was a relevant way to do it. The American League never faced off against the National League. There weren't as many interleague trades. They only seemed to face off at spring training and at the World Series. You have one other way. So let's get all the best American Leaguers. They'll take on all the best National Leaguers. And there was intense uh, rivalry between the two leagues that just isn't there now. So quit trying to replicate that. You know, there's lots of things that used to be really big. Vaudeville. Minstrel shows. You know, I mean, there are things that used to be really popular. You know, the uh, you know, zoetropes at the, at the county fair. 
Instead, here, we've grown and we've adapted into other things. And so if you want to keep doing the all-star game, adapt it to the modern times. It doesn't matter as much in the middle of the year. It could matter at the beginning of the year. And I have said there are two breaks you can put in the season. One at the one-third mark, one at the two-third marks. And those are the days where we relax the waiver wire rules and there could be a flurry of trades. But I digress. It's a good all-star game. We're moving on to the second half of the season. I'm going to say one thing about Miami. I've talked on this podcast about the fact that Satchel Paige is one of the great figures in the history of baseball. And his number is not retired. Jorge Posada's number is retired. Harold Baines' number is retired. I'm not saying that those two numbers should not be retired. Harold Baines is a beloved White Sox. Jorge Posada is a beloved Yankee. But Satchel Paige is one of those monumental figures in our history. And the only reason he's not associated with one team is because of the segregation of baseball. The greatest stain in the history of our game is not PEDs, is not cocaine. It's the period of time when a whole, like some of the most talented players in baseball were not allowed to play at the major league level. You looked at the, when they were going down the line of the players who were being introduced yesterday, keep that in mind. How many African Americans or Latin players, especially dark-skinned Latin players, were in that line? How many of them would not have been allowed to play in, that, in, in the All-Star Games the first, what, it's 15 All-Star Games? A lot. A whole lot of them, including the guy who hit the game-winning homer, Robinson Cano, including the guy who hit the game-tying homer, Yadier Molina. Nope, you are not allowed to participate. And some guy, some white guy from Biloxi, Mississippi, would probably be there. So, that's the only reason, only reason, why... Not, there's not one team that we associate with Satchel Page. Now, I have suggested that the Indians retire his number. He broke into the majors as a member of the Cleveland Indians. That makes sense to me. He also played with the St. Louis Browns and for one game, the Kansas City A's. Now, it would be a tough argument to have him, his number retired with the Baltimore Orioles because that's the team that the St. Louis Browns became. And it would be an interesting argument to retire his number in Oakland for the A's based on his 1-3 and you know, stint he had. Maybe retire his number in Kansas City. Kansas City and Cleveland are the two best locations, I think, to retire his number until it was brought up that he played several years and quite well for the minor league Miami Marlins. Satchel Page was a member of the Miami Marlins. Now, this is not the same franchise that currently exists. It was not a major league franchise. That didn't exist until 1993. But Satchel Page did indeed play for Miami. 
Lord knows how old he was. But he played well, he drew well at the box office, and there he is, there's pictures of him wearing his Miami Marlins uniform. So here is my suggestion to Jeffrey Loria or whomever, buy, I mean, someone's probably have bought the Marlins by the time I'm done recording this podcast. Consider this. Consider this Marlins owner, whomever you may be, retire Satchel Page's number, I believe it was 29 in Miami, whatever it was, and have it hanging up in that crazy stadium. The reason why is twofold, maybe even threefold by the time it's over. Satchel Page deserves to have his number retired. He's earned that. I think we can all agree with that. And while he didn't play for that specific franchise, he did play for a franchise that shared that name. And it's never a bad thing to have someone look up and say, Page, what's Page? Who's Page? And then you learn who he is and you keep his legacy alive. He played all over the map as a member of the Negro Leagues and various Negro Leagues and jumped around the major leagues a little bit. I stand by Cleveland should retire his number, and it's no sin to have your number retired with multiple teams. Nolan Ryan has his number retired with multiple teams. Rod Carew has his number retired with multiple teams. Frank Robinson has his number retired with multiple teams. Carlton Fisk has his number retired with multiple teams. Reggie Jackson has his number retired with multiple teams. That's five just off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a few others. But the fact of the matter is Satchel Page has earned it. And the Marlins aren't going to retire any numbers probably anytime soon. They have two retired numbers. Jackie Robinson, who was retired by all the major league teams, and Jose Fernandez, who's featured prominently in my new In Memoriam video that was released at the beginning of the week. And please share that if you haven't shared it with your friends. Jose Fernandez has his number retired because he died. And chances are that's the only way he would have ever spent his entire career in Miami. I know that's, that's, that's morbid, but that's true. And Giancarlo Stanton will go the way of Hanley Ramirez, will go the way of Miguel Cabrera, unless new ownership comes in and says, we're keeping him, which is probably not going to happen. He's the only chance of the Marlins having anyone with their number to retire because everyone else, I mean, they're not, well, not going to retire Pudge Rodriguez's number based on one year. They're going to have two World Series champions with no numbers retired from either one. The Houston Astros have like 15 numbers retired, except for J.R. Richard, and, and they've, they've never won a World Series game. So the chances of there being a number retiring ceremony in Miami anytime soon is beyond remote. It's as remote as me being named to the Supreme Court. And let me tell you, that's 70-30 not going to happen. So, and the Marlins need all the positivity they can get. Fans hate them. Baseball hates them. They have a terrible relationship with the city. They have a terrible reputation along the game. They're looked upon as an El Flopperino as a franchise. 
despite walking into, stumbling into a pair of world championships. They have, the, they have the longest drought of any team in the postseason from the National League. Only the Mariners have had a longer drought. They bought one championship. They stumbled into another. They've tore down the team left and right. They've they swindled the city of Miami. Have something positive. We are going to celebrate the legacy of Satchel Paige here in Miami. Why not? Tell me the downside. Tell me the downside of that. I don't know the downside, and neither do you. I'll tell you one downside before I get to team that should have won. Um, I'm, I mean, I addressed this on Twitter, if you follow me there. The Mets posted a tweet. And there was a tweet of Jose Reyes, like signing tons of autographs, all these people surrounding him and celebrating him. And with the title, Man of the People, Jose Reyes. I mean, this is why I talk about this topic, which every time I bring it up, people say, there are people who say I'm being holier than thou, or people just stick to baseball. Okay? If Jose Reyes served his suspension for domestic violence, yes, he did. You say he paid the price. That's debatable, but in terms of eligibility for participating in Major League Baseball games, the answer is yes. Now, I don't think anyone should sign a domestic abuser. Being a Major League Baseball player is not a right. It's a privilege. But he did serve a suspension, and that means he has the right to come back if a team wants him. And the Rockies didn't want him anymore. And they cut his ass. And the Mets, who are, let's just say they're slightly tone deaf, signed him and celebrated it. If you want to sign him, I, I do have a problem with that because that is a part of a um, sense of saying, okay, everything's, of saying everything's okay now. Domestic abuse is one of those unforgivable crimes because the effects are irreversible. This is not the same as PEDs. This is not the same as cocaine or drug test. This is doing, this is, and it's not making a mistake. Domestic abuse is not a mistake. It is a crime where you're trying to control and terrorize another human being, one you profess to love. And that's what he did, and that's who he is. And, all right, the Mets signed him. And he played in the postseason. And he sucks now, which is amazing because it's like, why are you keeping him? You're obviously not keeping him because he's a decent human being, and you're not keeping him because he's a good baseball player. So why is he still there? Man of the people. The Mets are not just signing him. This is not just giving him a second chance this is the bullshit you hear from time to time. They are celebrating him and his character. They are celebrating him and saying he is someone to admire. And you wonder why people shake their heads. You wonder why victims of domestic abuse are not quick to have their voices heard. Because they see the people who abuse them being celebrated. In other words, 
less than a year and a half after abusing his wife, or his wife or his girlfriend, it doesn't matter. It's all, everything's okay. He's a man of the people. And we're going to celebrate him. Fuck that. And fuck the Mets for doing that. They should cut his ass and nobody should resign him because he doesn't deserve it. He hasn't earned it. The effects of what he did will live on forever. And this is part of the culture that we have to stand up every once in a while and say, stop! This is why sports, baseball, have to take a long look in the mirror and say, what are we really going to do? We can't just make lip service about domestic violence. And we have to do that as a culture, too. We have to do that as a culture to say, hey, maybe a domestic abuser could be someone who's smiling and looks happy, like Jose Reyes, or a quirky, charming guy like Johnny Depp, or a distinguished manager like that asshole Bobby Cox, whose plaque should be removed from the Baseball Hall of Fame, melted down. Bobby Cox's number is retired. Bobby Cox is a domestic abuser, and Bobby Cox is a piece of shit. Respect of all baseball. Who cares? He's a domestic abuser, and in the end, that's all he ever was. We all thought Kirby Puckett seemed like a nice guy, too. Hell, we all thought OJ was a nice guy. And this is part of the problem of our culture and domestic violence, is we belittle it. It must be her fault. Ah, they made a mistake. Ah, well, at least he can still hit. Oh, roll this Chapman. He's hitting the gun at 100 miles an hour. You don't want to say hitting and gun when you talk about a Aroldis Chapman or Jose Reyes. You want to say it's his right to keep playing? I'll grind my teeth? Okay. You want to celebrate him? You want to celebrate him? That's you. So we've got to really take a good long look at ourselves and say, what is the most important things in our life? If Jose Reyes did PEDs, people would be, oh, he's terrible, he's terrible, he's terrible. We'd never be able to live it down. Give me Barry Bonds with a syringe the size of a goddamn wiffle ball bat dangling from his arm. Give me David Ortiz taking, drinking from a jug that says PEDs. Give me A-Rod and having his, while on the on-deck circle, having his cousin injecting him in the ass over Jose Reyes and Bobby Cox. And if you have a problem with that, then send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com and I will reply, fuck you. And Ray, I don't apologize for swearing now, because sometimes swearing helps. Sometimes you need to emphasize it. I don't swear that much on this podcast. 
I don't even say God damn it as often as I used to, Ray. Sorry, Ray. But do you know what? Sometimes it has an effect. And the Mets, well, they fucked up. So what team am I going to check off the list of the teams that should have won? I already did the Marlins, and I've already done the Mets. Which one should I do now? Hell, let's do the Padres. Padres, with the Chargers moving to Los Angeles and the Clippers having moved to Los Angeles a while ago, the Padres are a unique baseball city. Do you know why? Of all the 30 franchises, they are the only one to now be a baseball-only city. Think about that. Every other city, even Oakland. Now, if the Chargers move and the uh, Warriors move across the bay, well, then Oakland will be the other one. So you're the only base, you know, the only baseball-only city right now is a small city, relatively small city, great city in Southern California. They could be joined by another relatively small city, but great city in Northern California. Remember, baseball has East Coast bias. But the fact of the matter is, the San Diego Padres play in San Diego, or as I used to call it, the Cleveland of the West, because they could not win. They have a tortured fan base, but they will never, ever have the reputation of being a tortured fan base for this reason. They play in San Diego. They play in San Diego where the weather's nice, and how bad can things be if you're in San Diego? The fact of the matter is, they remain one of the franchises to have never won a World Series. They've won a grand total of one World Series game. And the only time they've actually ever won the World Series was in the made-for-TV movie, The Kid from Left Field, starring Gary Coleman. I didn't see the end of Pitch. The show was you know, a well-made show that was on Fox. I don't know if they won the World Series at the end of that show. Maybe I'll binge watch that. But you got to turn to TV to see the Padres put together a winning product. As it turns out, they've won the World Series. They've won the pennant twice, and both times they faced the best American League team of that decade. They faced the Tigers in 1984. They faced the Yankees in 1998. Now, San Diego lost their Chargers, which was their main team, and I really, really hope they start to embrace the Padres and in a big way. Because, quite frankly, that's their last hope. Chargers are not winning a Super Bowl in San Diego, at least not now, as they're going to be the Los Angeles Chargers and watch them win four in L.A. Now, the weird thing about the Chargers moving, not that I know much about football, the weird thing about it is like, it seems like nobody wants that to happen. L.A. got the Rams, and they're totally indifferent to the Rams. They don't want the Chargers. Well, they have two teams they're indifferent to. And San Diego loved their Chargers. But this was about greed and wanting a new stadium and all this other crap. And the Rams beat them back to L.A., but they said, well, we'll join you. And I don't know what kind of fan base they're going to have. And you know what the funny thing is? I know tons of people in L.A. who are big Charger fans. A lot of them came up from San Diego. And a lot of them, for years, because remember, there was no football team from, was it 1996 to last year? Is that what it was? Or the year before? That was like, you know, it was like 20 years where there was no football team. So a lot of people were in L.A. The local team was San Diego. 
And even those fans, I have a neighbor down the street, big-time Charger fan. And I told him, you must be thrilled they're coming up here. He said, no, I don't want them up here. I want them in San Diego. And that makes sense to me. He's from San Diego. And when you root for a team, when you're displaced, you root for a team, it's, it means you're rooting for your roots. If the Red Sox suddenly moved and became the Nashville Red Sox, there's no way I'd be a fan of the Nashville Red Sox. No way. I'd find another team to root for. If they became the Nashville Red Sox, I root for them because of my roots in New England growing up. I grew up, I was born in Connecticut, and I grew up in the suburbs of Boston before we moved to California when I was in high school. And I never became a bigger Red Sox fan than when I arrived in California because it was my way to connect to my roots. Nobody wants this move. Nobody wanted the Padres to be alone, but there they are. There they are, alone, in a phenomenal ballpark, Petco, in one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been to, San Diego, in a great neighborhood, which is the, lamp, uh, the gas lamp district of San Diego. That place should be fully every night, even when they suck, because it's a nice time to be downtown San Diego. And 82 days out of the year, eh, 30,000 people should show up there and have fun. That's just what I think, because that's the, that's, the, that's the city's team now. That's your hope. They're your dreams. Now, for years and years and years, the Padres wore brown and yellow uniforms. They were run by Ray Kroc, as played by Michael Keaton in The Founder. And for years and years and years, they were a big pile of suck. Now... They were, let's go down, let's go to baseballreference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth, and realize they initially, you know, the, Preston Gomez was the manager of the team, and they came out of the gates losing 110 games. They were really, really terrible between 1969 and 1975, losing 90 games each year, and one, two, and five of those years losing 100 games. They did not put a winning product on the field until 1978. And then they didn't, then, then they were a 500 team in 82, they were a 500 team in 83, and then finally they broke through in 1984, won 92 games, but got crushed by the Cubs in the playoffs. Oh, wait! They didn't get crushed by the Cubs in the playoffs. They actually beat the Cubs in the playoffs. And then they got crushed by the Tigers in the World Series. Yeah, that really did happen. And since then, there have been years where they looked okay. Then 1989, they actually were contenders for a while, and they finished only three games back of the Giants who wound up going to the World Series. And then they were lost in the woods. Boa, McKeon, Riddick, Riggleman, all these people managing them, and then having fire sale and having players like Robbie Alomar, like Fred McGriff, kind of find their way into San Diego, and oh, there's Gary Sheffield traded away, and all these wonderful players. You had the great Tony Gwynn sticking with him all those years. Mr. Padre, he has his number retired. And then Bruce Bochy became the manager. Remember Boach? What happened to Poach? Oh, yeah, he's going to go to the Hall of Fame. 
And Bochi took them to the postseason in 1996. They got swept by the Cardinals, but hey, they weren't, no one was expecting that. In 1998, in an unbelievably deep National League, they beat two teams that won more than 100 games, the Astros and Atlanta, to go to the World Series. And they went to the World Series in 1998, and guess what? They held their own. I'm serious. They held their own. But Sully, they got swept by the Yankees. Hear me out. They had a lead relatively late in game one, and a horrible call, horrible call, of what should have been strike three to Tino Martinez went the Yankees' way, and pitcher Mark Langston realized, well, the only strike I could throw is right down the heart of the plate. He did, and Tino Martinez hit a grand slam to give the Yankees the lead. They had a lead late in Game 3 before Trevor Hoffman blew the lead, which is a theme amongst Padres history. I'm sorry. Trevor Hoffman's going to make the Hall of Fame. I don't belittle. I don't, I, you know, he's a fine pitcher. He had a fine career. I don't see him as a Hall of Famer. But I can't, you know, I can't scream at the tides. It's going to happen. And the, and the final game was very close until the end. So, yeah, they lost all four games. And only one of them was a real blowout. Two of them, they had a chance to win. Which was, you know, better than I think a lot of people thought the Padres were going to do. Now that's neither here nor there. Then they didn't make the postseason again until they had the worst team to ever make the postseason where they went 82 and 80 and because they got swept by the Cardinals they actually finished the season with a losing record and then they lost the next year in the postseason and they lost the one game playoff to the Rockies and then they lost the division on the final game of the season to the Giants in 2010 and they haven't been relevant since oh they tried to get relevant a few years ago they push their chips to the center of the table, and they try to make a big push for it. Turn out to be disastrous. Well, right now, Andy Green is manager. They have some decent players. They made some smart trades. And what they're really just hoping for is to be what Arizona and Colorado are this year, to be that surprise team when some of the stalwarts of the National League fall on their face. This year, the Cardinals, Giants, Mets, and let's face it, Cubs, have all fallen on their face, opening up the door for surprise teams. Unfortunately for the folks in San Diego, those surprise teams are in their division, and they're Colorado and Arizona. So it's possible that the Padres can put together a good potential pennant-winning team. It's just not going to happen this year. So they haven't had a lot of teams that fell short of winning the World Series, that you look at, oh, that should have been the team to win, that should have been the team to win. And the teams that I point to, you know, that 84 Padre team was a real fun team. It was cobbled together with a lot of pieces from other teams, like Greg Nettles and, and Steve Garvey and a couple other players you associate with other clubs being on that team. But hey, it would have had Tony Gwynn, and that would have been fun. The... Ones, the two that I'm really going back and forth on are the 2016. 
A, because I don't think I've had a team for 2006. I may have to go look. I know Cubs fan with an eight probably has a gigantic chart right now of the different teams that I've done. But I don't think I've done a 2006 team uh, that should have won the World Series. And that was a year where the Cardinals won. Now I did Minnesota. Okay, you're right. Twins should have won that year. All right, so let's... That 2006 team was interesting. It was the beginning of Adrian Gonzalez, who should have been one of the biggest players in Padres history. And Mike Cameron had a very good year. Jake Peavy was very good on that team. The team in 2005 is interesting because they were so bad. They won 82 games, and if they won the World Series, they would have had the conversation of this is the worst team to ever win the World Series. And I find that to be interesting. Uh, Because kind of like what I brought up with the uh, Rockies and the uh, Diamondbacks, to be able to have a team that people, without the big long history, to have a team that people will always refer to. You know, when you have a team that only wins 82 games, and say, well, guess what? They did win the World Series. They were the world champs. But I don't know if you want to have the reputation of the worst team of all time winning the World Series. That's a little strange. So I'm bringing it down. And I'm 2007, they had a chance, but they fell apart. And I don't know. I would have preferred they win with Bochy. And I actually think if that Padres team, which I thought was going to win the division, I really think that if they made it to the playoffs, they probably would have gone and won the pennant. But they didn't. And I'm narrowing it down to two teams. And there's a reason to pick the 2008 Padres. They had Caminiti, that had Trevor Hoffman, that had Kevin Brown, who was only a Padre for one year. It's one of those instances where it seems like he was a Padre for a lot longer than that. You had Tony Gwynn. I would point to that team because if they beat the Yankees, it would have been one of those upsets, one of those all-time upsets that made people say, wow, who could have imagined this Padres team? That probably would have made people remember them for all time. But I'm leaning a little towards 96, and let me tell you why. 96, they won a ton of games down the stretch, including against the Dodgers to take the division on the last day of the season. Now, they wound up getting swept by the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, They wanted to avoid the Braves, and it actually didn't wind up helping. They wound up getting swept by St. Louis in the division series. But here's some of the things that make me intrigued about that. Because first of all, you would have the narrative of them winning down the stretch and winning the division title instead of the wild card. And we said, oh, that makes it important to win the wild card. It would have had Bruce Bochy win a World Series with the San Diego Padres. He's already going to the World Series, but he's already going to the Hall of Fame, sorry. But it would have been interesting. There was also, for me personally... I get intrigued when you have a team that's filled with unlikely teammates. Now, you would have had the two most beloved Padres of all time 
be world champions on that team. You would have had Tony Gwynn, and you would have had Trevor Hoffman both winning the World Series on that team. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. You also would have had a very strange collection of veterans. Jody Reed, former Red Sox second baseman, was on that team and started 146 games. Wally Joyner. Wally Joyner, who was one of the big stars of the Angels in the 1980s, would have been there. You would have had Steve Finley, uh, who's wound up winning a championship with the Arizona Diamondbacks. But you also had players like Greg Vaughn, like Brad Ausmus. You had Rob Deere. Like all these players, like, oh, that would have been their championship. And then you had Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson was on that team. And you can point to him and go like, oh, he only batted 241 that year. Oh, yeah, yeah. He walked 125 times. His on-base percentage was 410. And at age 37, he had an on-base percentage of 410 and stole 37 bases and hit nine home runs to boot. He had Gwynn, the greatest padre of all time, in right field. And you had Fernando Valenzuela. Fernando was on that team. You had a bunch of players like Bob Tewksbury or Tim Worrell that would have, this would have been their championship. And, a, and having the two biggest stars in Gwynn and Hoffman have Ricky Henderson back on the big stage and have a slew of veterans winning a title, overpassing the Braves and winning a championship at a time when the Chargers were falling apart. And it also would have been in Jack Murphy Stadium. And I've said that this is an important part of some of these teams that should have won, is the optics of playing in a stadium where there was a lot of losing. The optics of saying, this is the park that I used to watch them play, and they were so bad for so long, but they wound up celebrating there. Eventually, the Padres are going to win the World Series. It will happen. It will happen. I don't know when. It ain't going to be this year. When they do, they'll probably do so in Petco. It'll be a great thing. But to play in the Murph, a symbol of so much futility in San Diego, not just for the Padres, but for the Chargers, and to stand over that as holy ground of futility and say, upon this place, we shall win a championship. Do you know what? It's not the most memorable year mainly because they got swept. We judge the memorable years based upon how far a team gets in the postseason. But the, ninth, the 2009 Cardinals were a much better team than the 2006 Cardinals, but people remember the 2006 Cardinals because they won the World Series. There are many Yankee teams better than the 2000 Yankees, but the 2000 Yankees won the World Series. And with that in mind, you don't necessarily remember how goofy and cool that roster was in 1996 for the Padres. 
But that's because they got swept in the division series. You'd remember the team in, two, in, in 1998 more because they got all the way to the World Series. But I do believe that combination plus the happiness of one more ring for Ricky and one more ring for Fernando makes the 1996 Padres the team that should have won. So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Send me, did I say, send me an email at SullyBaseball.com? I really don't remember. But this is the Sully Baseball podcast for the 12th day of July, catching myself, 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.